Friends, would you open in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 18? 1 Samuel 18, you'll remember that we spent a couple of sermons last week and the week before in 1 Samuel 17, which is the story of David slaying Goliath. And so this is the scene immediately following that, where David is then reintroduced to Saul. And this is the first we know of his relationship with Jonathan that is going to blossom in the coming chapters. So I'm going to read for us from 1 Samuel 18, and I just want to read the first five verses. Here now God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just sang that we have proved your son o'er and o'er. We trust him and we know him, and he is going to change us into his image. And so I pray that even now as we attend to your word, As we see the world that you have won and the person you want to make us, I pray that you would make our hearts sensitive to that, that we would hear from your Holy Spirit, and that you really would change us by one degree of glory to another, like your son Jesus. And so it's in his name that we ask. Amen. I want to talk about and think about this sermon, this passage in two parts. Essentially, the first part is we need to get reintroduced to the person of Jonathan. He's been absent for several chapters, and we need to uh, reacquaint ourselves with him. And then secondly, we're going to turn and find the ways in which Jonathan shows us Jesus. Jonathan points to and demonstrates for us who the person of Jesus is. So first, let's get reacquainted to Jonathan. We've heard about him in earlier chapters, but he's actually been absent for several chapters, and so we've missed a lot of the details in his life. But I want us to get reacquainted, and to do that, I want to point out three things about Jonathan's life that have shaped him. Three things apart from his faith in God, which we've already made much of, that Jonathan dwells in the world that Jesus has won. What are three other ways that, three other things or events that have shaped Jonathan? Well, first of those three is the fact that Jonathan is an heir. This is very important if we're going to understand the person of Jonathan and how it's shaping his life. Because Jonathan, he's not actually mentioned until 1 Samuel chapter 13, but we can imagine that chapter 10 was very significant in Jonathan's life. And we know the story of Saul being anointed. He was actually first anointed by Samuel in private when he was looking for lost donkeys. Samuel anoints him. And as far as we know, it's only Saul and Samuel who know about Saul's kingship. And maybe his son, Jonathan, probably doesn't even know that. So then there's a day in which the prophet Samuel, he gathers all of Israel, all 12 tribes of Israel to come to Mizpah, and he is going to draw lots for the kingdom. Now imagine this day in young Jonathan's mind. He's probably at least 18 years of age because he will be of military age by the time Saul is king for two years. He comes to Mizpah like every other Israelite and he's probably asking like every other Israelite, I wonder who the king is going to be. Is he going to be from the north of Israel? Is he going to be from the south where I am? Is he going to be east of the Jordan? Is he going to be west of the Jordan? What's going to happen? Who's going to be the king? Samuel draws a lot before the Lord And the lot falls on 
Benjamin, Jonathan's tribe. And you better believe that Jonathan was dumbfounded. I mean, for the king, not just to be in Israel, but from my tribe, that is incredible. He's going to be from the southern region. He's going to be from this area we dwell in. This is incredible. And Samuel draws another lot, and it falls to Jonathan's clan. And now Jonathan is beside himself because not only is this person from my tribe, but he's from my clan. I probably either know him or my parents know who he is, and we could possibly have access to the king over all of Israel. And then finally, shock of all shocks, the final lot is drawn and it lands on his father Saul. And that day in which Saul is anointed king, Jonathan, his firstborn son, is also assuming the position of a crown prince because he is the heir to the throne of all of Israel. You better believe, even though we don't hear about Jonathan on that day in chapter 10, that that shaped Jonathan to the core. He's a crown prince, and he will assume the throne of his father over all of Israel. So Jonathan's an heir, but he's also a warrior. When he does come to us, he explodes onto the scene in chapters 13 and 14. In chapters, chapter 13, Saul's been king for two years, and he appoints Jonathan as a general, as a commander over a thousand men, and Jonathan proves himself worthy of that command. He goes forward, and in chapter 13, it looks like he assassinates a Philistinian uh, prefect. That's a bold move that gives Israel the upper hand over the Philistines. And then in chapter 14, where we spent a lot of time, David, uh, Jonathan has this harrowing scene in which he grabs his armor bearer. They cross this rocky ravine. They come up the other side and they bowl over a Philistine garrison. And because they do that, they rout the entire Philistine army and they flee. So David proves, excuse me, Jonathan proves himself again and again and again as a warrior. He's a person of courage whom God is using for great military victories, and he shows himself to do that. Well, the third thing that is true of Jonathan, that is shaping Jonathan, is that he is popular. He's wildly popular. It's one thing to be entitled to a position. Jonathan, of no doing of his own, the lots have been cast, God chooses his father, and so he's going to be an heir to this throne. That's his position, but it's another thing to actually earn that position, which Jonathan does by being a warrior. He fights and he shows himself courageous and he earns that position. But then third and finally, He has this elusive piece of leadership that is not easy to come by, and that is he is wildly popular among the people. I mean that in the best sense of the word, that a leader who is loved by and adored by his people. We get to see a scene of that in chapter 14. After Jonathan has defeated the garrison, after the Philistines are routed, His father, Saul, makes a very rash vow in which he says, no one shall eat until I have completely vindicated myself before the Philistines. Jonathan, he doesn't hear that vow. He eats honey. When Saul finds out about that, he swears to God that he will kill his son. Well, when he does that, the people of Israel to a man stand up for Jonathan. And they say in chapter 14, verse 45, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. 
in, in a squaring off in a decision between the reigning King Saul and his son, Jonathan, it's a landslide. The people choose his son and they say, far be it from us that the man who has worked with God today to win us this victory, that he should be killed. We side with Jonathan and not a hair shall fall to his head. By the time we get reacquainted with Jonathan in chapter 18, the chapter that we just read this morning, he has been shaped by many things. He's been shaped by his faith in God. He's been shaped by the fact that he is an heir, that he is waiting to assume the throne. He's shaped by the fact that he's a courageous warrior and that he's wildly popular among the people. We can imagine that at this point in Jonathan's life, Military men, Israelite soldiers, probably sit around their campfires and they tell stories about Jonathan. They celebrate Jonathan and the victories that God has given them, and they can't wait until that day that Jonathan becomes the commander-in-chief. Because all these things are true of him, the description that's given to David when we're introduced to him in chapter 16, except for playing an instrument, all of that could be true of Jonathan himself. 1 Samuel 16, 18 is speaking of David, but it says, A man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Had we not known that that was being uh, a description on David, we could have easily have thought that that was a description of Jonathan because all those things are true of him. He is a man that is making after his own heart, a man of courage, and a man who has a great future. Because of that, because all those things are true of him, because he's been shaped in that way, what Jonathan does next is so radical, it's so countercultural, it's so remarkable that it can't help but show us Jesus. Because after Jonathan watches the victory of David over Goliath, he all but hands young David the kingdom in what he does next. Now, there could have been a way for Jonathan to see this scene very differently. Instead of doing what he does in chapter 18, he could have very easily seen David as this young, arrogant, upstart punk. He's not even military age, which is why he's not in the battle lines. But he comes and he gets a lucky shot against a Philistine, and now he has wowed all of Israel. And Jonathan could be very wary of this young man who could be very dangerous to him. I mean, in a power-starved, career-centric, tribally suspicious culture, as ours is and as Jonathan's was, you're supposed to bury people who can outdo you. You're supposed to not give somebody full credit for what they've done. You're supposed to keep a wary eye of them and be very guarded with the praise that you give that person. You keep your friends close and your enemies closer. You're very guarded with a rising star who can outdo you. But Jonathan doesn't see things that way. Or better, God is giving him new eyes to see the world that Jesus wins. Because the world that Jesus wins is a very different world than the one I just described. The world that Jesus wins is a place where it's possible to grasp and to fight and to push and to shove and to gain the whole world and yet lose our very souls. It's a world where the mountains, they're going to be brought low and the valleys, they're going to be lifted up. It's a world where little children come and inherit the kingdom of heaven and a rich young ruler can be turned away empty-handed. 
It's a, it's a place where it is better to serve than to be served, than to give, than to receive, to think about the interests of others than our own interests. This is the world that Jesus is winning. And Jonathan right now, he's not thinking about himself and his kingdom. He's thinking about God and God's kingdom. We can only assume that Jonathan was there in chapter 17 when the Israelites were arrayed along the rim of the Valley of Elah and he watched Goliath come out day after day for 40 days, morning and evening, and taunt the people of Israel. And Jonathan, just like all of his fellow soldiers, was frozen with indecision. He was frozen in cowardice and he could not move forward and engage in that battle. And he watches young David whom the Lord is raising up to take away the reproach of Israel. So Jonathan, remarkably, from a position of power, he has age, experience, wealth, royalty, inheritance, weaponry. Jonathan, he humbles himself and he esteems David. That though Jonathan was rich, yet for David's sake he became poor, so that by his poverty David might become rich. When Jonathan does that, when he demonstrates this, he shows us Jesus. He shows us what Jesus is like and what Jesus does. There's this incredible moment in one of Paul's letters that's going to happen a thousand years from now in which Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. They meet in that city, they're a church plant, and he's trying to convince them to give a generous financial gift to the church that's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been hard hit, and there is a need for provisions for that church. And even though the church in Corinth, they might not have a lot of personal connections or the layperson might not know people in Jerusalem, Paul is making the case, please, on behalf of brothers and sisters, give generously to this church. Well, to make that argument, to convince them to do this, he makes this powerful point in the gospel, which comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In other words, we as believers, we do not need a special invitation to lay down our lives and to serve another person. We have a standing one in the gospel. That Jesus himself, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. And as we celebrate next month in the incarnation, he came to win us our salvation. This is the example of the gospel. This is the standing invitation to every believer to come and to die and to serve another person. Well, Jonathan, he takes this standing invitation and he chooses Christ over comfort. He chooses reproach over the rights that he's due. He chooses humility instead of grasping for the inheritance that is his by his rights. Now I can imagine that we've got some very astute Bible readers in the room who are thinking to themselves, hang on just a minute. We're using Jonathan and Jesus in the same sentence, and Jonathan is alive a thousand years before Jesus is born. And so to run forward in the New Testament and grab Jesus and to drag him back a thousand years and to plop him in 1 Samuel 18 sounds like hermeneutical funny business to me. Well, I'm so glad you made that point. That's a tremendous uh, question of interpretation to ask. And I want to give you an example of what I'm doing. If you want to keep a finger here in our passage and flip forward to the book of Hebrews, 
I want to look at a verse in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, Hebrews 11, of course, is the great hall of faith. It explains mostly Old Testament saints who exhibit faith and hope in Christ and what he's doing. And in Hebrews eleven twenty six, we get this interesting explanation of Moses and what he's doing. Hebrews eleven twenty six. He, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Isn't that interesting? Moses lives 400 years before Jonathan, which means he lives 1,400 years before Jesus. And yet the writer of the Hebrews is saying there is some vague and shadowy way in which Moses understood that he was making a decision between the kingdom of Egypt and the kingdom of God. And furthermore, to receive the latter, he needed to give up the wealth of the former. Moses didn't know everything, he didn't know the details, and yet God in his providence showed Moses that in some way, my anointed one is worth more than all the wealth of Egypt. And then the writer to the Hebrews can celebrate that Moses made that decision for Christ. So it is with Jonathan. He doesn't understand what God is going to do in his providence. He doesn't know what's going to happen a thousand years from now, but he at least understands at this point that the way into the kingdom of God is not pushing and shoving and that the reproach of Christ is greater than all the wealth that assuming the throne in Israel can give him. And so he chooses Christ over what he is heir to. Now, I don't want to make any specific points of application and tell us to take this and do this. Instead, I want to look a little more closely at a life that is completely free in God. And as we see a fellow saint experience this freedom, I want that to spark our own imaginations as we think about our lives. And as we talk about that with a spouse or a friend, what does this mean for me to take this standing invitation of the gospel and to mirror Christ in all that I do? Look at verse 1. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What a beautiful description. Jonathan goes from there and he makes a covenant with David and then he gives David his robe and he gives him his weapons. Now all of that is extremely significant. It's significant that Jonathan would take off his robe and he would give it to Jonathan. He would clothe Jonathan in his robe because that's a very public act of a transition or a recognition of authority and power passing from one person to another. Whether Jonathan was trying to articulate that or not, that's not how other people could have helped but read this situation. In fact, there's another story from another culture in another kingdom that's happening around the same time that this happens between Jonathan and David. And we read about it in the history of that culture in which a king and a queen, they are divorcing one another. And they have a son together, and the son must choose between father and mother. And the king says to the son, if you choose your mother, that means you've chosen against assuming my throne, and you need to take off your robe and the clothes you are wearing, and you need to leave them on the throne and walk away because you've given up the kingdom. We can't help but wonder what's going through Jonathan's mind as he takes this robe and he gives it to David. 
Well, he also gives him his weapons. We know from a couple chapters earlier, at the worst point in history between Israel and the Philistines, there were no swords in Israel. The only two swords that were in Israel were in the hands of Jonathan and his father Saul. And so Jonathan has something that's very rare and very valuable, and he gives that sword along with his other weapons to David, essentially passing that mantle of power to him and making himself vulnerable in front of David. Well, David's going to take these things, he's going to wear this robe, he's going to fit himself with these weapons, and he's going to go out from here, as we're going to read next week, and he's going to lead Saul's army into some incredible victories. In fact, women in Israel will make songs about David and the the victories he achieves, and Jonathan won't be mentioned. Jonathan does this, and then he kind of gets lost in obscurity in these next few scenes. I wonder what Jonathan's friends made of all of this, because we could guess that chapter 18 that might have happened in private after Saul was talking to David, maybe Jonathan pulled him aside and just privately said, I see what God's doing in you, I want you to have my robe, I want you to have my weapons. But even if he did that in private, at some point David is going to be leading an army and someone's going to come to Jonathan and say, what's going on, man? I saw David wearing your robe and swinging your sword what are you doing? And why would you give these things to somebody like David, who is a rising star in our midst? That's very unking-like of you to do. And Jonathan couldn't have helped but hear the twinge of reproach in those questions from a friend. But far more than any kind of question that a friend is going to ask him, Jonathan, in the next few scenes, is going to be openly and publicly ridiculed by his father. He's going to be absolutely embarrassed for being the kind of man who would give any kind of power, any kind of recognition, turn and lay down his life for the sake of another person, not from his tribe, who could very easily become the next king of Israel. His father Saul is going to openly humiliate Jonathan for doing this. But you know what? That's exactly what Jesus said would happen in the world that he wins. Matthew chapter 10 Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jonathan, he gains a friend in this act, and he loses a father. Jonathan, he gains a friend in David, but he loses a nation. David increases, Jonathan decreases. But that's the nature of being free in the world that God wins. It's being free from this greediness for the praise of another person, this this freedom from a desperation to have and to hold on to. It's a freedom from the angst of reputation, and it's a glimpse for us of what it might look like to love Jesus above all else. Jonathan shows us Jesus. This past week, uh, John, Pastor John, pointed out a new poet to me who's phenomenal. Robert Hayden, he was the first African-American to hold the U.S. Poet Laureate position in the late 70s, and he's a brilliant poet and a brilliant thinker. But he wrote a poem called Those Wintry Days, Sundays, in which he is a grown man, he's looking back on his childhood. 
And we gather from the poem that his dad was a very hard man and maybe showed loves in ways that Robert Hayden wasn't ready to receive. But as an adult, looking back on that, Hayden is beginning to see that he doesn't understand the ways in which his father really was showing him love. And so Robert Hayden, he describes a Sunday morning scene in which his dad gets up before anybody else and he makes a fire and he warms the entire house and then he polishes all his kids' shoes to get them ready for church on Sunday, but they don't recognize that love for what it is. Here's what he writes in a poem entitled Those Winter Sundays. Sundays too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold, then with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Can you see that in a son not interpreting from his father the ways in which his father is actually loving him and not giving him gratitude and looking back and saying, I know nothing of love's lonely and austere offices. Love for God and for friends can counterintuitively invite thanklessness and loneliness. The reproach of Christ, it rarely comes with applause, but it is a freedom in the world that God wins. Even love's lonely and austere offices are worth all the wealth in Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, would we see the world as such? Would you give us eyes to see that you've won a world in which we are invited to follow into your footsteps, that though we are rich in whatever ways we are, we come, become poor for the sake of another, and in doing so, we imitate your son Jesus. Would you give us the power to do that more and more in our midst? We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.